Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. I am Michael Rogers. I have been part of this church since... What year? 1994, I came here from Pennsylvania to be pastor, and I'm now seated on the sidelines as a retired guy, watching with delight the things that God is doing in this church of his as he brings us growth and change. I'm introducing myself to new people every Sunday. I'm waiting for somebody to come up to me and say, welcome, sir, are you new here? It hasn't happened yet, but it may very well. I don't know. My wife and I are, I think, enjoying retirement. We could uh, tell you about all the doctor visits and all that stuff, which is no fun to tell anyone about. But uh, I stepping in here with 24 hours notice from Pastor Tucker, uh, a saying has been given to me many times over the years that when you're an ordained minister, there are three things you should be ready to do at the drop of a hat. Lead in prayer, preach a sermon, and die in Christ. And we'll see if I can do the second, otherwise I'll be happy to do the third. But uh, tonight I am stepping in to take the text, and the subject that Tucker was going to take is, uh, I believe you're turning back to uh, the study of the life of David. 2 Samuel is where we are, 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read a part of 11 and then a part of 12 and hope that you can visualize the events that are in between and certainly you can run your eye down the page even as I'm speaking. Well, first of all, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, this is your word given us by your servants, your prophets, given in truth about the life of David. We thank you for this, for the word that is sure and true and that reveals you in every possible way. Bless it to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time came when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. Now, in between, what I'm not going to read, you know the basic story is that uh, David had to cover things up. He knew that 
this woman was pregnant, that it was his child. He had to find some way to make people think it was Uriah's child. That strategy failed. He, he amazingly, for the king of Israel and the man of God's own heart, devised a wicked plan to have Uriah put in a frontline place of battle where he would be killed, and he was. And so then we come to a scene in beginning chapter 12, and I'll read 14 verses of chapter 12. I want to read the last verse of chapter 11. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Then we have the prophet Nathan coming in, and most of you know this story, how Nathan preached a parable about a rich man who took the only lamb of a poor man and aroused the king's ire about it. The fact that anybody would think of doing this in his kingdom made David say, give me a sword, I'll execute this guy myself. And then we pick up at verse seven. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. All along the seacoast of the United States, you can travel today and frequently see the remains of lighthouses from northern New England on south down the entire coast. Many lighthouses, I'm sure you know, have been preserved for people to visit and take pictures and enjoy, but very few of them are really used anymore for what they were built, why they were built. Because I think we have things like global positioning satellites and everything else that keep ships from striking the rocky coasts that the lighthouses were built to illumine. But I have you think that perhaps a passage like the one we have read in God's word is like a lighthouse shining a beacon on a rocky coast for the people of God to see and beware and not become shipwreck in their own lives. 
Almost every year I hear of some Christian, well-known either in my own personal circle or the circle of evangelical believers, sometimes pastors, very notable individual just a year ago that many of you would write a name down if I asked you to. People who have made serious shipwreck, it appears, of their own spiritual commitments to Christ and to ministry. And I hear those and I wince and I grieve in myself and I say, how could he have done that? But I don't ask it as a question for very long because I know how he could have done that. Because whoever this person is, they're a sinner saved only by the grace of God and there but for God's grace go I. The name of a very beautiful woman is forever linked with the Bible's King David, the name of Bathsheba. Her apparently alluring beauty brought David low in disgrace at a time when he was at the very peak of his powers in a crime that marked his family in such a way that it came in trouble and disaster through his son Absalom rebelling and other things that occurred exactly as the prophet Nathan predicted would happen here, even though the Lord brought forgiveness. The name of Bathsheba, this Bathsheba episode, as some call it in David's life, introduces a king who always had feet of clay, but now he just shows it and demonstrates it so ably. David remains after this, the man after God's heart. That's the incredible thing about David's story. He can go this low and still in the end be called the man after God's own heart. While God related to another king before him, King Saul, who also sinned in very grievous ways, and yet Saul did not remain a man after God's own heart. He was a cast-off. He was apostate. And one important goal for us tonight is to know the difference. Why was one remaining in the blessing of God, David, and the other, who also said words of apology, or, or well, gee, I'm sorry, God, why did that one get himself cast off forever and die by suicide. I want you to hear a very practical truth tonight. You're not a king or a queen, and I'm not either, but the dynamics at work in these lives are at work in our lives as well. In the Christian life, our goal is not to avoid sin altogether. Our goal is not to avoid sin altogether. You say, wait a minute, what? Our goal is not to avoid sin altogether. That would be an impossible goal. We will surely sin. And we will surely sin in grievous ways. It's impossible not to sin. The practical lesson God has for us, I'll tell you right here from the start tonight, is that we would recognize sin for what it is in our lives name it for what it is, rebellion against God and a stench in God's nostrils, and we would confess it and truly lay down our repentance before God and receive forgiving grace, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, in the first place, this grim account of David's epic sin should serve like a moral lighthouse 
lightening the landscape for us that we must walk upon. And in it, we should say that we realize the worst failings of which believers are capable may come to us and be enacted through us. One of the strongest proofs that the Bible is revelation from God rather than simply a religious book devised by men is that almost every single human hero of some kind of faith that you meet in Scripture is painted for us, warts and all. Did you ever realize that? Try, try to make a list of the Bible characters, people of faith, men or women, who have no evident sin or grievous failings in their lives as Scripture portrays them. You won't have a very long list. Because in Scripture, every pillar of faith that we might think about has a weak and corrupt side, if not even a disastrous side. Noah, man of astonishing faith, who built a structure at the command of God that was all out of place and the mockery of his neighbors, and somehow Noah persisted and continued to build and obeyed God in a magnificent act of faith. But then, soon after the earthwide flood, what do you have? Noah, drunk, sprawled in his tent and committing an act of incest. Abraham, great man of faith, unbelievable, went places that God directed him to go with no human indication that this was wise or, or right, but he went because God commanded. And what do you have? Abraham using his wife as a bargaining chip with a foreign king. Peter, growing in faith until he was saying so many right things and making so many right actions towards Christ, but then disowning the Lord. Right after he'd said, anywhere you go, Lord, I'm right behind you, one step behind, I'll be there. Peter, disowning Jesus with a curse. Well, the Bible is not a religious comic book about super saints depicted so as to impress you with their deep purity of life. It is not a Marvel Comics construction where super Christians or super Old Testament believers soar along on wings of absolute purity. The real Bible is not like that. Commentator on 2 Samuel Gordon Ketty wrote this, King David, I quote, is no pristine superhero who floats across the ground in effortless triumph. If David is to be saved, it will be God who must save him by pure grace and nothing else. Now there are some physical human reasons why David fell so badly. One of the things I think we learn here is that he is simply representative of all humanity who are innately sinful from the Garden of Eden onward. Our, our basic human nature is evident in him. We are born in sin and we act in sin. Romans 3.10 declares a terrible summary. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one naturally seeks after God. They have all turned away 
and become worthless. So every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That is God's verdict through Paul in Romans. And that biblical diagnosis comes out other ways, other places. We could spend a lot of time reading verses. James chapter 1 adds, each one is tempted when by what? Some nasty guy tempting him? No. By his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So wrote James by the Holy Spirit. Our entire ways of thinking, the motives that spur our actions come from evil desires and from sin, that which was born way back and evidenced in the Garden of Eden. Well, 2 Samuel 11 gives us a very human reason why this thing happened, this crime of David's. The king was relaxed when he should have been on duty. It's no accident that the writer tells us of the king's situation when this temptation came. Where was he? You read the first verse of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time came when kings go out to battle. But what did David do? He sent Joab. He sent the army. But he did not go to battle. He did not seem to feel at this point in his life that there was any reason to be armed against an enemy or alert to combat an enemy. And he did not think, I'm sure, of that which wouldn't be written for many years to come, but was said in Matthew 26 by Jesus, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Christ calls us to a a state of being armed, being prepared, being on watch, for an enemy that will come against us when we look for him the least. David may have been lounging on his rooftop at the time when kings usually go out to battle. We don't even know there's a battle most of the time. David, we think, was about 50 years old at this time. Often, I believe, the failings of middle age can be the most catastrophic. You who are too young to be called middle-aged. I don't have a a particular age to assign. You figure it out. But if you think you're not middle-aged yet, learn from people like David that maybe some of your life's hardest tests are still years away from you. They're not the things you faced at age 20 or 29 or 32, but the things you may face at age 40 or age 52 or 57, or 72. Did you ever think anybody could get to be that old? I actually know somebody. (laughs) Midlife success and the possession of some kind of authority to feel I'm in charge, I have this thing called life gathered into my firmly clenched hands, and I know nothing can happen that will bring me down, and so I will lounge my way through my spiritual life. That's what David was doing when the big attack came. Another contributing factor here was peculiar to some extent, at least to David, and that was a general weakness in the area of women that you can observe 
across his entire life as scripture gives it to us. I'm not gonna go into the naming of the other women who had become wives by this time, but certainly we can see that David had an eye for an attractive woman. And he already had multiple wives. If he saw a woman who fascinated him, whether by her beautiful looks or her bright mind as in Abigail, he took her from whatever situation she was in and made her his wife. He took that pattern not as taught to do so by the word of God, but by the teachings of his culture that said, well, there's no need for a limit or a powerful and rich man may have as many wives as he wants. The culture said that, and David obeyed it. I've heard people blaming Bathsheba for what happened here. They said, well, a woman maintained this very strongly to me once. She said, I think it's all her fault. Why was she bathing on the roof? And she have some idea where the king's palace was and the sight lines from her roof to his? Well, I'm not prepared to speak to that. But we won't gain anything by blaming this misdeed of the king upon the woman. The guilt was David's. It wasn't too long ago that former Vice President Mike Pence had an interesting interview. I don't even remember how this came up, but he was being interviewed by reporters and somehow the issue came up that Mike Pence had a firm personal policy of conduct that he brought into the White House and the vice presidency with him. And the policy was that he never went to lunch or breakfast or anything like that to a restaurant with a woman who was not his wife, no matter if she was his chief policy aide or head secretary or whatever she was, Pence did not meet with her alone. Well, there were reporters at a ball with that. What an idiot. What's wrong with this man? Doesn't he understand the neutrality of gender in our society? The reporters just mocked it. Well, I will speak up for Mr. Pence and tell you that I followed that policy for 46 years in pastoral ministry. I learned it from Billy Graham, who learned early in his ministry that there were those who would bring him down and would have like nothing better than to have a photo of Billy Graham having breakfast with a woman who would not be identified, or even if she was identified, by incrimination, they would do him harm. I followed that advice throughout my time in this church and churches before this one. You ask any of the women who worked on our church staff, I don't need vindication, they will tell you. We never had that kind of time alone that could be interpreted or misinterpreted. I love my wife too much and I wanted them to love their husbands too much for that to happen. Advance attention saw to it that Job, the ancient man of God, in Job 31, told that he did just about the same thing that Vice President Pence did. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Now, Job was a a frail man and a sinner, and it was because he knew he was a sinner that he said such a thing. I have sat down and thought about this and know that I'm a vulnerable person and my eyes have a way of wandering, and so I draw a line in the sand around my relationships 
with women that, of course, must happen in one way or another in this world. But I will tell my eyes when they must stop looking in a certain way. That kind of advanced attention leads you to pray that way and say, Lord, may I this day not disobey the covenant that my eyes have made. And we need to watch out, whoever we are. You don't have to be a ministry leader. Any of you in business, in social affairs of today, needs that covenant with your eyes that Job so well spoke about and David neglected. But this tragedy also lets us behold the futility of sin's cover-up. You see, it's not only that we would sin once, but then having done it, we then have to bring out a big broom and try to sweep up and, you know, get all the damage out of sight and go on spinning lies and putting fences around our history so others cannot trace any evidence to us. Behold the futility of sin's cover-up. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In other words, you not only sin, but then you sin and sin again to cover up the first sin. How ironic that it was the foreign-born Hittite, not Israeli-born, but a soldier from another culture who came to work for and be employed by David and, and turned out to be one of his finest battle captains, who is the righteous man showing devotion to God here, not David. Uriah. David couldn't tempt him no matter how he tried to say, well, Uriah, you're here in the city for a day or two. Go down, relax with your wife, take it easy, have a couple days siesta here, and then we'll send you back to battle. And Uriah said, I, in essence, I will not do that while my fellows are in the field fighting your enemy, O king. <laughs> Uriah's righteousness spoiled the king's plan to try to later be able to say that any child born was Uriah's and not his. What a paradox that we would fight to maintain our good reputation when we've already sold it downriver. When we've already cast it away and trampled on it, we try to launder our good name so that others will somehow think we're better than we know we are. Can you see that devious attention and effort is required to hide a shameful act that you would have been able to avoid doing entirely in the first place? Be sure your sin will find you out, the scripture says. It will. It always does. The cover-up cover failed. And look here at 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know, we're told that at the end of chapter 11 when he failed in the attempt to get Uriah to go along with what he wanted. Not just when he uh, took Bathsheba and made her his wife, but when he tried deception and everything else, that was part and parcel of the thing David had done that displeased the Lord, not just our original sin, but all the lies that have to be told to masquerade thereafter. 
Well, thirdly, please learn, we can, we can, by the power of God, be transformed by true repentance made before the face of God. I didn't uh, read you the whole parable of uh, Nathan's sermon. You can read it yourself, but I think you know it. The story he told at the beginning of chapter 12 there, for brevity's sake, I just didn't read it, but it was about a rich man stealing a lamb from a poor man who had only one. And wow, that got to David clearly an act of great injustice. David must have risen right off his throne and turned red in the face with anger and, I'm the king of Israel, bring that man to me. I'll show him what for. And all Naaman had to say was in verse 7 there, David, you are the man. It's you. And there comes a time when God has to say that kind of thing to us. You can be indignant about the sins of others that you hear about or read about, but it's you who is found guilty. And there's almost no end, you see, to the self-deception we're capable of. But then along comes God's Spirit, not just whispering in our ear, but actually shouting, You are the man. You are the woman. This scripture was written for you to recognize your own deception, not someone else's. And the big breakthrough comes at 2 Samuel 12, 13. If there's a single verse that should stand out from what I'm preaching to you tonight, it would be 12, 13. As David finally confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I count six words in English. I don't know what they were in Hebrew. Six words. I have sinned against the Lord. Well, David, we know you sinned against Bathsheba. We know you sinned against all the Israel people who look to you as a moral exemplar and watch you fall on your face here. Uh, We know you've, you've sinned against Uriah, for heaven's sake. But you see, David got it right. He went right to the heart of the matter, guided by the Holy Spirit. I have sinned against, blank, fill it in, the Lord. Whatever the sin is, it was against the Lord. And until David knew that, and until we know that, we haven't confessed. We have not repented. Until we are able to see that it is God that our rebellion is against. It is God that we throw a spear into his heart. Someone said, when we sin in the way David has, we are really pretending to be God ourselves because we grab the reins of our life and say, I'm able to be in charge. I don't have to follow what God wants here. I can do it myself. I've got a better way. And you know what? We like to say you'll feel awful when you're doing that, but the fact of the matter is it can feel really good to be disobedient to God. It can. You are pretending to be God and you are taking charge where God is in charge and that can feel pretty good for a while. Having usurped God's place of supremacy, you promote yourself to being God for a day. Not too many of you are old enough, but probably 
Maybe 20% of you are old enough to remember something I remember well from my childhood, a, a show called Queen for a Day. Anybody remember? Let's see hands. Oh my, more than I thought. This is an old audience. Queen for a Day. A housewife from middle America would be brought onto the TV and she would tell a sad story of disaster and poverty and difficulty that her family had experienced. And, you know, everything was bad and the tears were flowing copiously. Well, you knew what was coming, and I'm always surprised that the lady was surprised because she knew she was on the show, Queen for a Day, and what happened on Queen for a Day was you got a new washer, a new dryer, a new lawnmower, a new wardrobe, I don't know what all. Your fondest dreams, vacation in Hawaii, whatever. And she was queen for a day. She got a crown on her head and beautiful music, and models came out and pointed to the washer and the dryer. And I sat there as a seven-year-old and said, how could you possibly have been surprised? You knew what show you were on. Well, we go on the TV show called God for a Day and seat ourselves on the little throne and say, boy, it feels good to be God. It feels good to be able to direct my own life and not be bossed around by God. But David, you see, was confessing all that here. He was saying, I have sinned against the Lord. Not just Bathsheba, not just Uriah, not just the whole nation, not just my family in days to come, not just the son who would die, not just Absalom who would rise up against me later and disgrace me. I've sinned against the Lord. And when you can say that, you see, you've turned the key that opens the lock of biblical salvation. Because those are words of a believer. No hypocrite can speak those. Saul, you see, never spoke those words. I used to wonder, why was it that Saul did all kinds of things that were wrong, displeased God, and he would sort of appear to get off and go on and do another bad thing, and and he would have a kind of prayer. You can check this out in the life of Saul if you want. And and Saul would say, oh, gee, I'm sorry. Uh, God, I realize I shouldn't have offered that sacrifice. I should have waited for the priest to come. Uh, You know, I did wrong, but it's just a little thing, and we can work something out about it, can't we, so that I still look good and I'm still the king? You see, all of Saul's repentance, study it as you will, All of Saul's repentance ended with something that asked God to let him still look good, to come out without a big stain on his name and on his crown. And David simply said, I don't see how I can look good. I have sinned against the Lord. No hypocrite like Saul ever says that. And Saul, therefore, never heard. You are forgiven. Saul never heard, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Saul simply heard, you will die. And he did, in disgrace. Darkness covered the life of Saul. Why did God allow his chosen king David to have his grievous fall here with Bathsheba? Well, I think without it, David would not have discovered how freely and wonderfully 
God loves to forgive those who can label their sin by the same ugly name that God gives to it. I have sinned against the Lord. We have an infinite number of ways to sin. God has just one way to forgive us by his grace in the name of Jesus Christ to all those who will name their sin in all its awfulness and receive his grace in all its sparkling wonder. And he loves to do this. Ask him. You'll find out. Father, thank you for these dark chapters. We sometimes think we'd rather have a Bible without these chapters, but where would we be? Where would be the remedy for us when we in our lives look so much like David or Saul? Teach us to look at our own lives with deep honesty, perhaps even tonight as we come to your table and receive the elements of your grace. May we know where to say and where to point to ourselves and you and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you for the wonder of salvation. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.